like you to turn, if you would, your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Welcome to this blessed Palm Sunday morning where we can worship together and worship the Savior. Hosanna, how many can tell me what that means? What's Hosanna mean? Transliteration of Hebrew. Save now. That's what they call to him, save now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. So I guess I would say to you, uh, call out to the Lord today. If you do not know him, what a marvelous day it would be to come to that understanding of who he is and why he came and all that he's done for you and on your behalf before it is forever too late and you'll stand before him as a judge. I encourage you to do that. We come on this day, and I really want to preserve our time together because we have some very fun things happening right at the end. Uh, we've got an emphasis on some outreach and some scheduling things that are coming up that I think that you'd be encouraged. And I, the message, I think, tailors itself to that. And you're going to hear a little bit more about the whole, uh, the outreach emphasis through the summer and into the fall uh, in the days to come. So let's turn, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 14, if you would do that with me. Uh, if you are a note taker, you can find notes on the back page of your bulletin, and they will correspond with some slides that have things underlined. That is your cue for takeaway this morning, if that's helpful for you. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard. You can find that in some of the chairs that are in front of you, or you can just read in your copy, and I'll make sure that we stay together by some verse cues. Picking up, I do not, on, in chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For, verse 15, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel, verse 16. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me, Verse 17, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Verse 18, now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Verse 21, what you desire, shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's stop right there. We are coming to a close with uh, Paul's emphasis as we worked verse by verse through these first four chapters in 1 Corinthians. As uh, we've, we've titled this study through these two books, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, the first thing Paul takes on is this lack of unity in the church. And he's made some marvelous arguments, and really it's kind of, if you if think of it this way, he's come up to the peak of his arguments, and now he's walking back down and just making some closing statements, which are very important, as I told you last time, uh, have a lot to do with the church, a lot to do with uh, how things work out in the church, and I think you're going to be encouraged as we go through this. But Paul, as you can see, uh, particularly if you've been with us, but Paul's very, very zealous for the church to walk in unity, and he is very sincere as he writes to them, because he wants to lead them through the Holy Spirit and solve the problem that is there. He has approached the symptoms, He's given the diagnosis, uh, he's given the cure for this disease of division from a number of different ways. And while he has been dealing with their problems and really confronting them about their attitudes and their childish behavior, he's also constantly explaining his relationships with them. And we get this marvelous uh, thought today, too, about his relationship to the church. And I think we get all of that so that not only do we see the problems, but we also get to see the many approaches to the solutions to those problems. And as he transitioned to this section where he really explains another facet of his relationship to them, uh, he used some sarcasm. And it really, to, I think, really helped them to identify and for him to identify their attitude of pride. And that was probably hard for the church to hear. 
And so he makes his intention clear. Look at verse 14. I don't write these things to you to shame you, he says, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul says, I'm not trying to bring shame on you. Uh, I'm here to warn you because I love you. We're going to talk about that more in just a few minutes. I'm warning you, he says, because this is how you've been conducting yourself in the church and that can't continue. So I'm giving you this admonition. Now, if you remember, last week as we closed out, I gave you a list of some of the imagery Paul draws upon to speak of himself or to speak of a minister or a pastor or one who leads the church or is in Paul's case and that of Peter and others in the first century, the apostles uh, and the prophets, uh, which really helped define his relationship to them and the relationship of pastors to their churches. And so it's very enlightening for us to read it. For example, and I gave you just an overview quickly as we, as we closed out. I want to give you some references here. As Paul works his way through this pass, these passages, you'll see some of these references and the imagery that he draws on to help them understand his relationship to them. In 1 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, what, is, what then is Apollos and what is Paul, servants through whom you've believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? So the imagery he uses is that of a servant. And then he moves on to verse 6, and he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And there we see uh, the image of a farmer. It's called to mind. And then we uh, move on to 1 Corinthians 3, 9 and 10. For we are God's fellow servants, uh, fellow workers, rather, you are God's field, uh, God's building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. And there we get a couple of imagery uh, that's really marvelous. He's called God's co-worker. Uh, he's called God's builder. Paul's referred to as a builder, and we looked at that at length when we looked at verse 10. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, uh, he says this, Let a man regard us, once again, in a plural reference. So Paul is certainly taking in himself as an apostle and Apollos as a pastor. Uh, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And there we get the two that we looked at very carefully before we get galley slaves, or an under rower is the actual word, and stewards. So those two things there are imageries which help, uh, which help the church understand Paul's relationship to them. So many images in 1 Corinthians are used to describe the ministry, and all of them taken together give us insight to what a pastor is and what the under-shepherd is and what the elder of the church is, and then the images will continue right into 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says this, he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Catalage, a noun, reconciliation. It comes from the profession of an accountant, uh, putting to rights an account. And the image is, uh, we have had our account put to rights uh, through Christ's payment on the cross. And then the image uh, is here that the pastors are given this ministry, this ministry as spiritual accountants. And so the imagery there is that you've been given this to do uh, you've been given this, and certainly that applies to all believers uh, as well, helping some come to the place where they, uh, their account is reconciled through the relationship of God through Christ. And so another imagery then to help uh, the people understand where Paul uh, is headed and where he sees himself as he deals with the church. Then 2 Corinthians 5.19 continues this passage, a marvelous passage, namely, as Paul explains it more, he says uh, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And then here it is. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Themenos, the idea of a trustee. Paul says part of the imagery I want you to understand is that we are a trustee of this word of reconciliation because we have experienced what God has done through Christ, because we've seen what God is doing in the world, then this world has been, here it is, deposited. So we see a spiritual accountant there in the verse before. We see this trustee of what's been deposited 
in us, and we're trustees of that deposit. And that applies, of course, uh, to not only to pastors, but also to every believer. And we've seen that as it expands out uh, to everyone's responsibility. And we're, uh, uh, to be about speaking this word, kataleges, reconciliation, it's part of our language as we speak to people. And this is an actual, listen, a continuous explanation by deed and by word, the atoning work of Christ. It has been given to pastors to do this. It's been given to believers to do this in general, and we're supposed to be about doing this. We've been made spiritual accountants. We're a trustee of the deposit. We're supposed to be making these things plain. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it's all rolled together. These three passages to me are very, very rich for us. And as we get them and really break them down uh, as we move into 2 Corinthians, I think you're really going to enjoy this. But he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, then Paul says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And they're the images of being an ambassador. See? And then we're kind of rolling all that together, a spiritual accountant, a trustee of what's been given. And then all that together, as we do that work, we are looked at then as an ambassador. A profession not unlike the world's understanding of an ambassador. Pastors are to represent God in a foreign land. You're to represent God in a foreign land. And so there's that marvelous imagery there. And there are many others like it. Acts 20, verse 28. I'll put it up here and just move quickly through these last two. Uh, Paul uses the word episkopos. It's translated bishop in the King James. It's translated overseer in the New American Standard. It's drawing on the image of a curator, a guardian, an overseer. And he repeats himself in this reference in Philippians and 1 Timothy and Titus. And so a very important, again, imagery uh, that Paul uses to describe his work and the work of those who work in the church. In 1 Peter 5.2, uh, we see Peter say, shepherd Poimeino, guide, help, feed, lead. That's the idea. It's the verb shepherd, the flock of God among you. And then exercising oversight. That's a form of the verb episkopos. So an overseer, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sort of gain, but with eagerness. And the idea, of course, there is the imagery of a shepherd and what a shepherd does. And so much imagery expressed here by Peter, previously by Paul, to help the church understand his relationship to them so they can understand his approach to the problems that are there and then in general the relationship of the pastor to the church and the many different hats that then are put on. So First uh, Timothy chapter 2 verse 7 we also find uh, the word herald used in its preacher in the New American Standard. Uh, the word herald is there in the New King James and the King James. That's the word translated preacher. He says this, he says, for this I was appointed a preacher, that's the word herald, and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So the imagery of a herald, the imagery of a shepherd, the imagery of an overseer, the imagery of an ambassador, a trustee, a spiritual accountant, a steward, a galley slave, uh, God's co-worker, a builder, a farmer, a servant. So Paul just uses all these things to help the church understand, listen, as I approach these issues with you, understand there's a whole bunch of different ways that I do my ministry, and this describes some of the ways that I go about this. So, you have this imagery that describes Paul's relationship to this Corinthian church, and by example describes the relationship of pastors and churches and the different dynamics that are connected then with each of those images. So you have a domestic imagery, which really speaks of his ministry. You have a construction imagery. You have a laborer, a co-worker type of imagery. You have an agricultural type. I planted, Apollos watered, and that agricultural imagery. You have the imagery of an accountant, kind of making sure you are about, making sure uh, uh, accounts are set right. You have this, what could be called a legal imagery of an ambassador, an overseer, a herald. And so all these things that wrapped up, and remember, in the four chapters we've been studying, as Paul has gone through this with us, Paul has been very straightforward with the church. Uh, he has come down hard on selfishness, fleshliness, worldliness, pride, and he has spared no words. 
And he's taken them to task for their love of human wisdom and, and for their divisiveness and for polarizing the church with, uh, with their opinions. And, and he comes to the passages right before these, he becomes very sarcastic. And we read that last time. And when you get to the place where you're using sarcasm, you're really dealing in a forceful language. And he's been very stern with them, and he will again in the chapters to come as he deals with their issues over and over against the plan for a healthy church. But he stops right here in verses 14 through 21, and really he tells them why he is so stern and why he's so strong and why he feels that he must uh, speak with such conviction. And the reason is because he sees himself, and here's this marvelous imagery now of a father spiritually. Now look at verse 14. He says this, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you, here it is, as my beloved children. So that's the first way that he references it. He moves right into verse 15, and he really gets the imagery he wants them to see. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many, here it is, fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. So he wants to make sure they understand, of all the other imagery that he said, that after he comes to the hardest part of the language he had to give them, he says, listen, I want you to understand that the imagery there that I want you to get across is that I'm coming across as a spiritual father. And it's a very personal imagery. It's very close. It's very warm. It's very secure. It's the imagery of a spiritual father. Now, all of you who are fathers can certainly understand this, okay? And whether you are, uh, whether you are a father with adopted children, whether you're a father with biological children, you deal sternly and you deal strictly with your children. And, and when you, you use Ephesians 6, that instructs us, you know, discipline and instruction in love, you really to conform their lives to a biblical model of living. You do it because you are their father and you love them, and that is exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul says, uh, just uh, at the end of, of this first thing I want to talk to you about, just, we're just getting to the end of this first uh, section of, of the problems you've got in the church. Uh, I need to bring this to your attention. I want to tell you, he says, that the reason I'm going through this hard stuff is because I have an overwhelming sense of responsibility for you as a loving father does to his children. And he wants to make sure that they understand that. In, in light of all the other hats that he has to wear, um, it doesn't diminish any of them. He just says, listen, I, I need you to understand at the end of this very hard language I had to use with you that I'm using that because I am a father to you, a spiritual father. If you remember now, and I thought this was interesting comparison, in 3 John 3, um, John says to the church, remember this? For I was very glad when brethren came, do you remember this? Testified to your truth, that is, how you're walking in truth. And then he says in verse 4, which we love to do as fathers, we, we quote this about our kids if our kids are doing this. Uh, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children, he says, walking in truth. Now I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? Paul is really saying the exact opposite of that, isn't he? Catch this, okay? I was very saddened when Chloe's people came to me and told me about your divisions. And I have no greater distress than to hear that you're not walking in the truth. That's really how you can sum it up, can't you? As you get to the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, that's exactly what Paul says as he moved into chapter 2. Chloe's people came to me and told me that there's divisions all over the place. Are you not still carnal, he said. And he was grieved, no doubt. So it's exactly the opposite of what John says. I was thrilled. Uh, I had no greater joy than to hear my children walking in truth. And Paul says, I have no greater grief than to see that you're not. See? Same imagery of a father and a child in both passages. And opposite reactions. Okay? Now look back at verse 15, if you would. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers... For in Christ Jesus, I have become, I became your father through the gospel. In other words, you may not have a lot of instructors, 
uh, or you may have a ton of them. You, but one bottom line is, I'm the one who is your spiritual father. He gave the gospel out, and faith comes by hearing. Uh, he planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Uh, they responded as he went to that little church. It tells them he's not just their tutor, a slave, if you will, hired to bring them along, which is what a tutor is. As someone a family would bring in to kind of uh, teach the children and take uh, the time to do that while the family and the father and mother are about other things. He said, I'm not just your tutor. Uh, he's really compassionate. He shows how he feels. He shows his heart. It's probably hard for them to see it during his rebuke. And you can imagine, he's, they're probably not thinking he really loves them, but he wants them to see it now. It, it was not different. Uh, he was not indifferent to them. He, uh, he was just merely carrying out orders as a servant, uh, and he was sensitive to them as a father. He gave them the whole counsel of God and was kind of faithful to do that, and he also wants them to understand that he loves them as a father. Now, this passage, really 14 to 21, really expands on that concept and develops for us a very beautiful picture of the ministry of a spiritual father. And so I want to take some time with that, and we've already made the case, I think, that the imagery of a spiritual father is how the scriptures describe Paul's ministry and a pastor's ministry. But I would also submit to you, it describes every believer's ministry, in a sense. If we take in the whole of the counsel of God, if we take in all of the, of the, uh, uh, the command to go and to preach the gospel and make disciples. And so, and just so this is going to be obvious to you, I want to take a few minutes and just kind of pick out, uh, pull a few things out uh, that you can see what that has to look like in my life, what it has to look like in your life. Now, we're going to start with this characteristic from verse 15, although that isn't the first characteristic listed, uh, and you'll see why I'm going to do this in just a minute. It's just the most obvious as it's connected to this imagery of a spiritual father. Now, there are some other things at a part of the father imagery that uh, Paul is using, but this is the most obvious. So we're going to start here, and then we're going to back up from verse 15 into verse 14 and get two more. But you can see why we're going to start here. Look, if you would, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I became your father through the gospel. So number one, characteristic of a spiritual father is what? Producing spiritual offspring. Right? I mean, that's just obvious, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to be a spiritual father, you've got to be producing spiritual offspring. And this is why this dovetails together with what we're going to talk about at the close of the, of the message in outreach. In other words, leading people to Christ, that's your job, and that's my job. And that's obvious, I think. We can, we can pick that up from the Great Commission. In order to be a father, you have to have a child. Now, it could be an adopted child, it could be a biological child, but you have to have a child to be a father. And there are believers who are not spiritual fathers and have never been. They've never led anyone to Christ. They have never produced a spiritual child. And that may spring from an incomplete knowledge of the Lord's command to them or a misunderstanding of uh, maybe they're hyper-Calvinists and they think you know, God's just sovereign and all that and we don't have to do anything. Okay, but that's really missing a huge section of the scripture and the responsibility placed on individual believers. And so the idea there is that there are believers who aren't spiritual fathers. Now, this is written in a masculine sense, okay? So understand, ladies, it still applies to you, okay? Uh, so the idea is it could be, you know, an incomplete knowledge of the Lord's command, but more likely a lackadaisical response to the Great Commission, more likely, okay? Because most people know, if you've been here any length of time, you know we've talked about this over and over again, Okay? And if you haven't witnessed, don't kid yourself, and I say this a lot, you may think you're a soul winner, but if you haven't witnessed in the last week or the last month or the last six months or the last year, you are not a soul winner, and it's unlikely that you've produced any spiritual children, particularly recently, okay? And so understand that you may be on the wrong side of the place where you need to be, okay? So just so that we're real with ourselves, because we're really good at convincing ourselves that we're good at witnessing when we're really not doing it at all, okay? So... 
Let's just be real with ourselves, all right? Every believer should be a spiritual father in the sense that they're seeing people come to Christ. That certainly is an, e an easy thing to, to support. And that comes as a result of consistently giving out the gospel. Remember, and I say this a lot to you, and I'll say it again. People don't come to God because you can make a great argument for objective morality, okay? You may be a super great arguer, and on Facebook you may put people in their place because you can make an argument for objective mor morality, all right? You, people don't come to faith because of that. You just, make, you just tick them off, all right? Now, you can bring them to the point where they don't understand objective morality and that they're placing their own morality, it's just random, okay? But then it has to follow up with the gospel, all right? Don't stop there. Okay, and, and people don't come to Christ because you can flawlessly defend the existence of God with a cosmological or teleological argument. They're not coming to Christ because you can do that, okay? They're going to think you're really smart, but they're not coming to faith, okay? People don't come to Christ because you just live it out in front of them, okay? People come to Christ because faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of Christ. People come to faith that way from your perspective, okay? If you give out the gospel, that's the bad news and then the good news, consistently enough, you will become a spiritual father. As indicates in 1 Corinthians 4.15, of course, through the power of God in Christ, you know, uh, and Romans 10.17, through the agency of the gospel, through a human witness, okay? It's obviously, it's not your power, obviously it's not your uh, ability to craft words, it's the power of God working in Christ in your life. And it's this agency of the gospel through a human witness. And you can do it. And you have the ability. If you remember, we look at 1 Corinthians 1, 5 through 8, as Paul was talking about all the benefits that come to those who are believers. Remember this? Paul says, listen, this is you. In everything you were enriched in him, here it is, in all speech and all knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that you know everything about everything, okay? And that doesn't mean you can stand up here and talk to you about nuclear physics or whatever. Some of you probably can. But... That doesn't mean that you know everything because you came to faith. It just means that you know what you need to know in order to do what you're supposed to do. You have all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So you came to faith, and as you came to faith, and the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life, you then were given all speech and all knowledge. You have what it takes to be a witness, and by being a witness, then become a spiritual father. Okay? So that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you're You've got what you need, you've been supplied with what you need to, uh, to do the things you need to do, and you're, about, you're supposed to get with it. Because you're in Christ, you have the power of God moving through you, because you know the word of Christ, you can give out the gospel. That's how it's simplified, okay? That's very basic, very basic to bringing someone to faith, okay? James 1.18 just kind of confirms that for us. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God, of course, sovereign in salvation. Again, in the tension of the agency of the word, coupled with human volition, delivered by the vehicle of an obedient disciple. Okay? That's how God chose to work out this delivery of the plan of salvation. Of course he's sovereign, yes. In tension with this agency of the word, coupled with human volitional response, delivered by a vehicle of an obedient disciple. That's how it works. Okay? And you should sense, listen, you should sense a great spiritual responsibility to be about this work. Not just people who are under your ministry, not just people who work for you, not just people who are maybe higher up on the food chain in the ministry or whatever, not just the pastor, all right? It is about me too, but you, okay? 
you should sense a great spiritual responsibility to be about this work. Matthew 9, 36, Jesus is speaking. He says that seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to sovereignly save his people. Is that what he said? Beloved? No. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to come and sovereignly save his people because, you know, we're all elected and it's just going to happen if it's going to happen. No. That is not what he said. What's he say? Send out workers to the harvest. Who's that? Right? All of you. If you know Christ as your Savior, you've been equipped in all speech and all knowledge, and you're not lacking any spiritual gift, and you have the ability to do it, and you should sense an overwhelming responsibility to be about doing that. Okay? And I think that's important. As Paul moves through all these hats he wears as a, as a, a pastor, and, and he describes those in the ministry that way too, he says this when he gets to the most difficult part of his, of his instruction to the Corinthian church. I'm coming to you as a father. And that's a very important principle for every believer. You should have spiritual children, people who've come to faith as a result of your witness. Okay? And we need to understand, listen, send out workers to his harvest. Christ did that. You are to be doing that. And as you do that, you're going to become a spiritual father many times over. And when each of you begins to take that responsibility seriously, we won't be able to keep up with the growth that that will produce. Okay? Let's just be real. That's how church grows. Not just me being a witness, you being a witness. Not just John being a witness or Jim on the plane to Hawaii or wherever. Listen, it has to be all of you. You all have to be doing this. Okay? And we know Paul was a spiritual father to many in the Corinthian church. Okay? He, he led the leader of the synagogue to the Lord. Remember that? Ticked everybody off there in Corinth when he first got there, led leader of the synagogue. They said, you've got to get out. So he goes, okay, well, I'll move in with the leader of the synagogue, one house down from the synagogue, and I'll just do my ministry there for 18 months. So he was a real thorn in the flesh to the Jews. But listen, he was faithful, okay? And he, he led uh, a, a lady to Christ and another guy to Christ, and this little church, this core of the church started to grow, and, uh, and the believers began to duplicate themselves, and no doubt Apollos added to that number. After Paul left, after 18 months, Apollos came in, so he became a spiritual father to some, and we know some came from abroad, right, from under Peter's ministry, and came up to this church in Corinth, and so we know that uh, he would have been their spiritual father, and some came from Jesus' earthly ministry, remember, because they said, I'm of Christ, and so we know some came out of Jesus' earthly ministry, and even though all spiritual fatherhood is through Christ, I think it's pretty cool, just as a footnote, some responded to Christ himself while he was on earth, and so, in, in a in real sense, the one who is the spiritual father to all was actually the physical spiritual father on earth to some, and that's pretty cool. I'd like to talk to them when I get to heaven. What, what was that like, responding to Jesus' words and his, his, uh, his invitations? Just amazing. So, Paul referred to Timothy and Titus, remember, as his children. Anesiphorus, remember, he said that a child I have begotten in my bonds became escaped slave. Philemon talks about that, came to see Paul. Paul witnessed to him, uh, led him to faith. Paul also, uh, Paul also went to a number of missionary journeys, planting churches. He, when he wrote to the Galatians, listen in Galatians 4.19. Um, I'll put that up there for you. Listen to how he speaks to them. My children, so obviously part of his missionary journey led people to faith in Galatia. My children with whom I am again, he says, in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you and, and to change my tone 
for I'm perplexed about you. In other words, I'd like to come. It doesn't seem like you're following. It doesn't seem like you're being an obedient child to the faith. And I'd like to come and just verify that you really are, because I'd like to change the tone. I wouldn't like to think this anymore. But I'm again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Not that they weren't believers, just that they weren't mature. Some of the same problems that they had in Corinth, right? I, I had to speak to you as infants in Christ before, and I've come back now after all this time. I'm writing you a letter. I'm still speaking to you as infants in Christ. That isn't how it should be, uh, Paul said. So there, an under-shepherd, and I'll just speak for myself, I feel a great responsibility for those in the church, and that's as it should be. And I, many of you feel that way about the ministries that you have. You, have a great you feel a great responsibility over those uh, students that you teach or the adults that you teach, and that is how it should be. But when you personally lead someone to Christ, you tend to have a greater feeling of responsibility and duty to those individuals, even than the ones that you've adopted and, and become like a spiritual father to them who were led to faith by someone else. And the reason why Paul writes with such intensity and engagement is that's how he feels. And even though once the church became self-sustaining, no doubt there were many, as the years went on, that came to Christ through other believers' witness. He still, though, had that burden that every pastor, and certainly to, to, some, to an extent, every believer should have. And he mentions it in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. He says this, apart from such external things. So he's talking about his life and the marks of the mission and the difficulty that he had and the stripes he took from the Jews and, and beaten and stoned and all this stuff. And then he says, besides all that, besides the trouble that I've had, uh, he, uh, he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern, and here it is, for all the churches. So this, these are self-sustaining churches, no doubt, that were producing other believers, but Paul had ministered there, and he felt an overwhelming responsibility for their benefit, for their enrichment, for their growth. He, it was on him. And then he says this, who is weak without my being weak? In other words, when he hears about someone who's failing, who's having a hard time in the faith, someone who's struggling a little bit, who's weak without him feeling weak? In other words, I, I, he empathizes with what's going on and struggles as they struggle. Who's led into sin without my intense concern? In other words, people far from him, of churches he planted long ago, and the one that he's currently pastoring, if they're led into sin, is he not grieved? And that's how it should be, see? An intense interaction. And that idea here in 2 Corinthians 11 really carries us into this next characteristic modeled uh, by Paul that concerned the imagery of a spiritual father. Number two, here it is. Number two, he says this characteristic of love. We touched on this already, so we won't go back through it in depth. And we have this idea of love being a sentiment, of being mushy, you know, warm, soft, whatever. And, and, and I think that it has some of those things to it. But I think that we need to really look at it, as Paul says, you're my beloved children, right after he gets through using the most difficult language that we can read in Scripture with them. Okay? And so I think we need to, to bear it out that way. It'd be much easier for Paul to say, I love you, and then just not say anything. Okay, and I say that all the time, especially as it deals with, over the years, you've had to deal with church discipline and inside the church. I would really prefer that the Lord had just said to every pastor, I'll take care of that. Don't, don't worry about that. We, you don't have to confront anybody. You don't have to talk to anybody. I'll take care of that for you, and all that will work out. Okay, and some pastors really do buy into that, and they just say, well, I'm not going to worry about that, and I'll just let it wash out like it's supposed to wash out. Obviously, that's not how it's supposed to be. So this characteristic of love, this spiritual father has with it a characteristic of love, and we'll back up for this one in verse 14. Uh, we did the first one, obviously, in 15, because bearing children obviously relates to a spiritual father. But this is important. It said, verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my, here it is, beloved children. And that's the word agape, agape tos, from the noun agape. It's the adjective agape. 
Tos, and, and the strongest word for love in the scriptures, the word that's demonstrated in 1 Corinthians 13, it is uh, a marvelous word. Paul illustrates his deep love for them as they question whether he loves them. I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, because of what he has to say to them. In 2 Corinthians 11, 11, he says, um, do I say these things because I don't love you? You know, no, God knows that I do. In other words, uh, do I say and do the things because I hate you? No, because I'm indifferent about you? No. Uh, I say the things that I say and do the things I do. Uh, the Lord's a witness that I do intensely love you. And they were hearing what he was saying, and they were translating that into, he must not like us, to say what he says to us. He must not like us. But quite the contrary, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 2.15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? In other words, Paul says, I'll do what it takes to tangibly express my love for you. He says, I'm going to spend myself, and even while I'm doing it, you probably won't appreciate it. And just like a biological or adopted children grow physically and into maturity in a very slow process with lots of mistakes, it's that way with spiritual children as well. Spiritual children grow slowly, and, and they grow slowly spiritually, and they mess up a lot, and that can be really frustrating. And when Paul writes this first letter, he still has to express to some people in this church he has to say this to them in, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, which I'm sure they didn't like. Brother and I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, Paul wasn't excusing them, okay? He wasn't saying, okay, I'll come back down to this level, and it's not a problem. He's saying, listen, I'm stating the facts based on your conduct and how frustrating that must have been for Paul, having spent so much time there. So here's an intensity in that relationship uh, and because you love them and the church, you love the church so much, you want to see that kind of immature fleshly behavior gone. And that leads really to the next characteristic of a spiritual father, both as pastor and a believer. Again, back verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you, here it is, as my beloved children. So number thir third characteristic, a willingness to admonish. A willingness to admonish. So producing spiritual children, the characteristic of love, willingness to admonish. Nutheteo, Greek verb, the idea, as we said earlier, was to warn. It's to warn with a goal of change taking place. Obviously, there were problems in the congregation amongst some, so Paul says, there's a problem here that isn't open for debate. The church has a problem, he says, so I'm writing what I'm writing so that you will change your behavior. And that's an important part of the physical father's work as well, and an important part of the spiritual father's work. Uh, for a physical father, as we, as we looked at this just a minute ago, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, uh, as we get this very small, condensed how to be a parent in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and of course all through Proverbs, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So in other words, you don't want to frustrate them, but bring them up in the discipline, and here's the word, instruction, that is the word admonition. The discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Okay? So the verse is key to child rearing. It's key. Okay? Discipline and admonition. Spanking and lecture, as we talked about in our parenting class. Okay? Spanking, lecture. Both of those together go in physical child rearing. And admonition is one of those key things there. And it's the same thing that Paul says, I wanted to admonish you. The ability to admonish is also key to being a spiritual father. In Acts 20, verse 30, listen to what Paul says as he's taking his leave of the Ephesian church. Okay? Listen to what he says. From among your own selves, men will arise, uh, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 31, therefore, he says, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to, what's the word, beloved? Admonish you 
each one, admonish each one with tears. I was about admonishing, Paul says, all the time with you because I knew what was going to happen when I go. People, individuals were going to get up and they were going to, uh, with their own opinions and whatever, they're going to rip the church apart. I was admonishing you, making sure you understood. I love you. And in loving you, I was going to correct this. I was going to bring this criticism on you with an idea for a change in behavior. And, and that's why, and I think it's important, as, as uh, we've talked about over the years, discipleship. And I've said this many, many times, and I'll say it to you. Discipleship can't be just a class, okay? Yes, there's information that you want to get across. For a new believer, there's much that they need to know. And it's, very, it's a very enriching time to spend in the Word with a new believer. But it can't just be a class. It has to be a relationship as you go through the Word where you have the opportunity to show them what needs to be happening in their own lives as an individual. You have to be able to see that. There has to be a close enough relationship that you can see what's going on. You can say, listen, this really needs to be corrected. Or you can just you know, give them a call or, or send them a text and say, hey, can we meet together? And just say, hey, you know, I love you, and so I'm going to say this. This is what needs to change. That's just what I see in your life. Okay? And that's certainly what a pastor must do. Paul says, Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, Paul says, admonishing every man, there it is, teaching every man with all wisdom. It's a combination, isn't it? Admonishing and teaching with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's the investment, isn't it? That's the level of investment both for those who oversee the church and those who minister, those who are believers, that is part of what you invest in. That's the intensity that you should have. Not only should you have an intensity, a, a, des, a desire, an intense desire to be a witness on a regular basis, but as you see it, through the Lord moving through your words and through his word and drawing people to himself, as you get that opportunity, then immediately you're invested as a spiritual father and you want to see through a loving relationship to them some admonishment going on. This is not right in your life and this needs to be fixed. Okay, and that's that whole package, see, of what it looks like uh, at the beginning when you lead somebody to Christ. Now, there's another part to it, and I'm going to say it in just a minute, and I, see, I think you can, and that will really kind of complete it. Uh, Paul says in, in uh, Colossians 3.16, as it deals with the church, okay, so he deals with himself, Colossians 1.28, move to Colossians 3.16, one of the ones I say to you all the time, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, here it is, teaching and admonishing one another, see, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's the one another. So if you go through the Be the Church class, so that you understand who we are as Berean, one of the things we stop on, as you understand what it means to be the church, is that the one another's belong to you. That every time you see one another, bear one another's burdens, uh, pray for one another, encourage one another, you know, lift each other up, admonish one another, correct one another, all those kinds of things, the one another's belong to you. And the more that you understand as you read through the word, that when you see one another, that's yours, the more the church functions like it's supposed to, okay? The one another's belong to you. So with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And oh, that that would happen more in the church, beloved that would happen more. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul puts it in the imperative. He says, we urge you, brethren, here it is, admonish the unruly. This is not even a choice, all right? Uh, what we like to do is we like to pacify the unruly, all right? We want to understand the unruly. We want to make sure that they feel good, okay? Well, what does Paul say? Admonish the unruly. Warn them, okay? And then they'll know they're being unruly. Otherwise, they won't know, will they? Because, obviously, if they're not walking in a spirit-controlled manner, they're not going to realize they're being unruly. Okay? 
So Paul says, we urge you, brethren, so he gives, the, he gives that to, obviously Paul's admonishing, isn't he? I mean, we just got through reading it. So he says, and I'm going to give this ministry to you too. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, so those that are having some trouble, okay, believing, encourage them, help the weak, those who are really struggling, they're right down on nothing, and be patient with everyone. He gives that to them. Do this, he says. And if you're able to do it, you will be able to do it if you're letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You'll understand what it looks like, okay? Romans 15, 14. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Paul says, listen, you can do this. Filled with the knowledge, all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Paul says, this is possible for you. You have what it takes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're lacking no gift. All speech, all knowledge, they all belong to you. So it's important. This admonishing is important. It's part of the responsibility of all believers. And present that in a relationship, it's obvious. You, you have a desire to produce offspring. You have a characteristic of love. And then, you know, even the hard things, it's not platitude. Okay, it's not sentiment. It's doing the hard things, being invested, being willing to be spent, being intense and concerned about the welfare of this one that you've led to Christ. See, that's love. Being given, being spent for it, being intense about it. It's important, okay? It is the definition, it's the verb form of this love that we're supposed to express to one another, okay? And then the willingness to admonish, to correct with a view to change. Then the last one for you today. Here it is, look at verse 16. We can skip down now. We did 15, we're back there to 14, and uh, then we'll go to 16. Therefore, I exhort you, Paul says, be imitators of me. And here's this great package, and we're going to finish with this because we have some important things to talk about, but here's the thing. Be an example. It is the, uh, from the Greek noun mimites, imitators. So we get our word mimic. Mimic me, Paul says. One of the best ways to disciple, listen, a spiritual child is just to set the example of what you want to see in them, in you. Okay? Once again, as you disciple someone, remember, uh, it's not about just giving them information. It's not about just, um, you know, teaching them. It's also about admonishing them, correcting the behavior, uh, confronting the issues that need to be changed. And then it's also putting those on yourself. Okay? And once again, as we really compare this principle of child-rearing at home, and we say this a lot, okay, and as we went through our child-rearing time, as we were uh, God's instructions for the house, for the home, one of the best ways uh, to disciple a child in your house is just set the example of what you want to see in them, okay? And, and the idea is you better be the person you want them to be because they're going to reject what you're saying if they don't see it in you, Okay? You're just going to reproduce you all over again. You're going to do that anyway, okay? But if you're not the person you want them to be, you can just forget it, okay? Because you're at home, and you can't put on your church clothes and your church face so that no one at church will know how carnal and immature you are. At home, it's just all in the wind, okay? So understand that about physical child-rearing. That's a very important principle that we can translate into spiritual children, okay? And if you can disciple somebody in the home then there's a genuineness to your faith, okay? That's why the Bible says that an elder or a deacon, and, and I've applied it in ministry as it applies to those who teach anywhere in the church, have to have godly children. They're not perfect children, but they have to be children who want to follow the Lord, okay? Why? Because it gives evidence of the truth of your ability to live the life. And so 1 Timothy 3 says you've got to have children under obedience. And, and, and Titus says you have to have older children who aren't in dissipation if you want to serve in the church. Because, hey, you are who you are at home. And your children will see that, okay? They're not, buying, they're not buying hypocrisy. They're out. 
You know, this whole, you know, this big seminar just not too long ago, last week, I guess, about children leaving the church, okay, when they hit 18. I've got a whole nother philosophy about all of that, okay? And it doesn't have anything to do with whether we taught Sunday school lessons or had the memorized scripture, which they rejected, and we didn't connect it to reality. Listen, I just say that's a whole bunch of psychology making its way into biblical teaching. Here's what I say, okay? That if you're a parent and you don't live out a Christian life in front of your kids on a regular basis, 9 to 5, and, and then at, at night and whatever, they're not buying it, okay? And as soon as they're old enough to not buy it, they're gone, Okay? In my opinion, and I'm not, I don't have a doctorate and I, I'm not expert in child psychology, but I will say this. If I understand this, what the scriptures have to say, I will say this. If, if, if you're not modeling that at home, it's all in the wind who you really are, your kids couldn't care less about, about walking in faith, okay? Let's just be real about that. And I think as we go along towards the end of days, we get more and more people in the church who aren't living like they're in the church when they get outside the church. And so you got a problem. The kids see it. So if you disciple somebody, beloved, as you just kind of connect this to the spiritual fatherhood, you produce spiritual children, you lead people to Christ, just set the pattern of your life that you want them to be. Whatever you want them to be, be that person. It's just obvious, isn't it? If you say, you know, I led you to Christ, and you know, I love you, I see the stuff in your life that you shouldn't be doing, and there are things that you should do, and they look at your life and say, you don't even do those things, and then you missed your opportunity, right? You missed it. Paul says this often, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. You're going to have to rein your life in, and you're going to have to set a pattern. As we saw in Romans 13 and 14, you're not supposed to wear your freedom in Christ, and I put that in quotations, just like a chip on your shoulder hoping somebody will knock it off, all right? Hey, I have freedom in Christ. I can do what I want. Yeah, you can do what you want. The problem is, is the example that you're setting is not one that's going to be godly, and nobody's going to follow you in godliness, okay? Set the pattern of righteousness, as the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 12.1. What's he say? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's scary all by itself, isn't it? Read that the other day, just thought, wow. I've probably been a real embarrassment multiple times in my life to the crowd of witnesses that watches. Surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. This is our believers, beloved. And sin entangles us pretty easily, so let's lay them aside. And let's run the race with endurance that is set before us. Paul says to the Philippian church in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And, and this is the translation, as you understand Paul's mind, as he desires to be a spiritual father, and he's willing to admonish, and he's, he also loves and does the hard things because he loves, and he's producing uh, fruit, he's producing, reproducing children, images of Christ. He says this, you know, he's admonishing the church. There are a whole lot of things that need to be gone from your life, okay? And if you get in this conversation with people, you realize that they will defend whatever it is that they're doing, okay? And they'd rather argue with you about it. Listen, Paul says, I'm not going to argue with about it. Here it is, okay? Um, just use this list. Okay? Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is a good report, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. Listen, I'm not going to argue about what you have in your life. Just make sure this list is being applied. Okay? And by the way, as a positive example, the things you've learned and received and heard in me, 
and seen to me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That's exhilarating, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's your calling. You're equipped for that. If you're a believer, you already have everything you need to do the stuff we talked about. Everything. Not lacking any gift, full of knowledge, full of speech, able to do these stuff, this stuff. Okay? So what's lacking? Maybe it's producing, reproducing spiritual children. Okay? That's where you've got to start. In order to do that, you've got to be a witness. You're reflecting this imagery of a spiritual father, where you're going to have reproduction, where you're going to have love, admonition, and a good example in your life. Not just teaching principles, but living principles in front of these people. Okay? And your consistent life will become a rebuke in and of itself. And that's really the summary of everything it means to be a believer. Now, next time we're going to review a little bit because we covered a lot of important things, critical things, although not a lot of distance in the text. But I think that assimilating these is important, making not just what's in our head uh, be understood, but actually making that start to work its way out. Because it's going to require, to be honest, if you're not a regular witness, it's going to require a huge change of lifestyle for you. Okay? You're not even going to realize you should have been witnessing. You're going to bump into somebody, and then they're going to leave, and then it's going to come to you, I should have given them the gospel. I mean, I talked to them for like 20 minutes. Right? So it's going to require a lot of changes, beloveds, perhaps for some of you. Maybe not any for some. And I know some of you personally, I know it's not going to require any change at all if you're a regular witness. It's marvelous to be around you. So that's what you're going to do. But listen, this, these are important stuff. Reproduction, love, admonition, a good example in your life. Not just teaching principles, but living principles in front of those people. A consistent life. Okay? So we're going to review that a little bit, and then we're going to see Paul providing an example to the church in verse 17. He's going to, he goes, I'm going to send you Timothy. And Timothy was Paul's child in the faith. And he goes, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And this is a, it's a really great example, though not expressly stated by Paul. Hey, you're going to see what this looks like. Timothy's going to come minister among you. See what that looks like to be a child in the faith, dealt with with admonition and with love, as an example of what it looks like to grow as a reprint of Christ. And then we're going to finish that uh, passage up through verse 21 after Resurrection Sunday. So we're looking forward to that. And I hope this was an encouraging to you as it was to me as I studied it again this week of uh, these marvelous things that are so important and part of being a believer. The most important part, of course, producing spiritual children. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Uh, I've got a few announcements, and I'm going to turn it over to uh, a few folks who are going to do some neat things, and we've got a video as well. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're just humbled and overwhelmed, really, uh, by how uh, practical, again, uh, the Apostle Paul is as he deals with his church in Corinth and how uh, that translates so well to us. So many of the same things uh, that need to be seen are still there and need to be seen. And Father, I pray that you'll just, by your Holy Spirit, apply these things liberally to our own life that we can see by looking at ourselves and not saying, I wish somebody else would be here, I wish somebody would hear this or whatever. But really, in doing that, express our own carnality, but instead, um, take a hard look at where we are. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will have its free way, his free uh, reign to do his work in our life, to convict us and bring us to a point of repentance, to to encourage us as we do the things we're to do. All the, all the work the Holy Spirit does, Lord, we just pray that you make that so apparent to us, particularly if we've gone into the habit of not witnessing, if we, we go through our daily lives on a regular basis and we never give out the gospel. Lord, I pray that you'll bring that again to afresh to our mind about our real job. And Lord, uh, you're always faithful to your word. It returns uh, not void, but having accomplished what you set it out to do. And so, Lord, I pray that in the bad news and good news, we'll give your word out in a package that people can hear and then by your Holy Spirit, you will draw them 
and they can understand by our faithfulness and by our testimony and by your word what it looks like to be a believer and that you will draw men to yourselves. We thank you for that, that promise that it's not your will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. Lord, I pray that we'll be about being faithful disciples to give it out. And Lord, thank you for an opportunity here in just a minute to talk about some opportunities to do just that. And I pray that you'll give us a wisdom on how to apply these things and when to plan and, and, and just put all the things together so that we might be an active witness in our community, faithful to do what you have told us to do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. It's for his sake. And all God's people said, amen.